Ideas can be farmed. The seeds of ideas can be planted, cultivated, harvested, distributed, and consumed. For ideas about growing, marketing, and consuming food, Idea Farming Consultancy was created to help organizations tell their stories and grow their brands. And for conversations about ideas that will matter, we have the Farm to Table Talk podcast. To connect on strategic consultancy, go to idea-farming.com. And to hear the ideas we're watching, stay tuned for Farm to Table Talk. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk focuses certainly on how food is produced. Oftentimes, we're talking about the about the animals, about the crops, and certainly about earth. We're going to talk more about people now. It's still in our system. There are issues we want to keep an eye on. And I think it's especially important to slow down and remind ourselves of what the issues are and then what can be done to correct them. And I've got the perfect person to help me do that. Uh, Ann Ross. Uh, Ann, welcome back to Farm to Table Talk. Back when we were able to have more sessions in person, I had a chance to meet you at uh, at EcoFarm, and you were you were one of the speakers there. And we just reconnected again. So welcome, Ann. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm happy to be with you again. And you know, you know, you have an interesting perspective, Ann. You're an attorney. And you seem to be committed to being engaged in um, causes, uh, trying to improve situations, identify problem areas. And that's what we came up with before. I think when we talked about before, we were talking about kind of fraud in, in GMO labeling and organic and, and so forth. And you were addressing those things. And you've gone from issues like that to the issues that we're going to talk about today. And that gets into human trafficking and where that still exists in agriculture. And once you identify that it still exists, we're going to talk about well, what can be done about it um, and explain, I think, that your role in it. So let's plunge in and expand a little bit more. How is it that you find yourself in a law firm based in South Carolina looking at this concerning part of agriculture uh, on the table for yourself. Right, right. Well, um, I'm an attorney at Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services. I was born and raised in South Carolina. And uh, several years ago, I got an LLM in agricultural and food law and um, really got interested, like a lot of people, in where does our food come from? But not only where does the food come from, but who are the people in the process? And when we last spoke, we were talking about organic grain fraud and the imports that um, were fraudulently labeled and just decimating the organic farmers in the U.S. who were um, growing legitimately and, and that. So in in addition to the farmers, um, I'm also interested in the workers. And that's what led me to um, get into this human trafficking line of work. So when you get into, you say that line of work, I mean, 
it seems I, I don't think of that as being a legal specialty. I, I, I understand that, that how, how it can be, but but when it's not something that you necessarily have that as a focus study in law schools, do you? Is it? It's it's becoming more um, uh, prominent. Actually, there are clinics in law schools now that focus on human trafficking, but I really see it as um, sort of a subsegment of of victims' rights. And um, that's the area that I that I work in here, and uh, my practice is dedicated entirely to to human trafficking um, victims. You know, I know there's got to be some people saying that uh, as they're listening to us, as even we're starting this conversation, that they go, "Oh no, there's one more thing to worry about." I mean, you know that. I mean, there are people that we have. I know listen to the podcast uh, and farmers and consumers, uh, even government agency people, and used to the thinking about the, the nutritional values of foods or the farming practices and and. And in some cases, how animals are being treated. And we've had several recent conversations uh, that that have addressed uh, humane practices. But this is another whole leap that often isn't on the radar screen for the average person, even if they're in the food system, that they even have something they should be concerned about. Um, so how widespread is this as an issue? Um and, and and maybe give us give us an example of the of a pattern or um, somebody that's or or a, a, an issue that people could relate to saying, well, here is a here for example, here is a program, here is a problem that we're addressing. Right. Um, and before I answer that great question, I think I should mention um, what human trafficking is because oh, there's should. so there are so many misconceptions about what it actually involves and. Um, under U.S. law, U.S. law uh, rec uh, recognizes two primary forms of human trafficking. One is um, commercial sex trafficking and the other is labor trafficking. Um, the area that we're talking about here today uh, is primarily labor trafficking. Um, you asked me how prevalent this is uh, in the U.S. and the statistics are really difficult to nail down. Um, there are more, st more statistics out there about uh, commercial sex trafficking, but less about labor. And when you think about that, um, it, makes, it makes some sense, as unfortunate as it is, because a lot of this work takes place in isolation. Um, also, it's underreported, and it's underreported a lot because um, workers are often threatened that if they report, um, they will be deported or their um, passports will be confiscated. And in fact, that's what trafficking involves is force, fraud, or coercion. So it goes beyond labor exploitation. You have to have those elements in labor trafficking, some sort of force, fraud, or, uh, or coercion. And that can be physical or psychological. Um, so we're trying, we're trying to get uh, more concrete numbers on this. Uh, the Department of State uh, has reported that about 17,000 victims of human trafficking cross the U.S. border um, each year, or at least in recent years. And, but that does not take into account those who are already here. Uh, 
Worldwide, that number is reported to be between 600,000 and 800,000. So it's a significant problem. Well, I'm glad you mentioned worldwide because we do have listeners from around the world. And I know I have listeners in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Europe, uh, some in Africa. Uh, so we have and and Asia, I guess we cover pretty much the the entire world that um, that can join us and listen to our listen to our podcast. The way that it happens, though, um, in many cases, it has to do with maybe people that are in a country, not legally, they, they don't have a regular passport, that they've come in, they're desperate to work and so forth. And then there's leverage, of, of I suppose, of anybody trying to take advantage of them, because it's it's harder for those people to report how they're being treated or that they're practically slaves uh, in some sort of a production operation of some sort is that does that tend to be the biggest the biggest share of the of the people that are victims of trafficking that they possibly are uh, immigrants that that really don't have appropriate papers well uh the immigrant population is particularly vulnerable because of just what you mentioned. That um, at times there aren't uh, docu- there is no documentation um, and problems like that. But actually, many are documented and many are in the country um, under, for example, an H two A visa, which is a temporary non-immigrant uh, visa that allows um, workers to come in and work on a temporary basis. What uh, what I've seen often happen is that maybe it's in Central America, just for example, uh, a trafficker may approach um, an individual, could be a child, could be an adult, and um, recruits that person to the U.S. You, you will have a better life. You will be paid X amount of dollars, which uh, the promises don't um, don't follow through. There's there's none of that. And oftentimes there's a debt that's owed. So or or that's what the trafficker creates a debt uh, so that the worker will think I have to stay in these conditions to to pay off this debt. And um, that that is absolutely illegal. And uh, the traffickers will then, you know, uh, force these workers into inhumane conditions, um, saying you, you still have debt to pay. And oftentimes they will even recruit these workers and say, you actually have to pay me to get you to the United States. And there's a recruitment fee on top of that. I've seen cases where um, workers have paid thousands and thousands of dollars to get to the U.S., uh, and and never see what's been promised to them. I saw a link that you had to one of the videos. It was a YouTube videos, I, I think, and I, I watched a, a couple of them. And I think the example they had is that uh, where a family actually kind of mortgaged a property. They had a small holding. I think this is in Central America, and so that they could come up with the fifteen thousand dollars. I think it was for somebody that was going to get. Uh, their their son or daughter into the mm-hmm. United States. And then once they got up there and they got them into some working conditions as labor contractors for someone, uh, they did hold that over their head. 
that they they were holding a mortgage on the on the, the the property back there and they had to keep giving a big share of whatever they were paid to pay back the in this case i do believe it was fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars that it took them to get into the country right and that i mean that's a tremendous amount of money um and in addition to that the the debt is never repaid. That is by design by the trafficker. It is a method of control so that uh, the worker is constantly told you still have work to do to pay off this debt. And there's the family. I believe the case you mentioned was in Guatemala, um, who no longer has title to their property. And uh, they did actually get that title back once an investigation occurred. Um, But this, this is a common method used by traffickers. You know, there have been books written about this before, and I've read some in, in years past, and I I have been led to believe that there have been much improvement. And certainly from a California perspective, I know that there were some um, more laws and regulations put into effect that uh, whatever, that there was less uh, less issues here. I don't know really what it's like in, in other states, but but there were problems in years past, and it seemed like they've been making a great deal of progress. And until I heard from you, Anne, I was hoping this had pretty much gone away. I mean, we've got so many other things that are probably front burner communications right now, such as certainly COVID, uh, that um, I haven't heard as much about these issues. So you're you're kind of um, you're kind of reminding me that you know shouldn't shouldn't um, say kind of out out of sight, out of mind that these are still issues. Because was was I wrong to believe that it's been getting a lot better? Um, It's hard to say if it's getting a lot better. You're right that California has um, implemented some legislation that uh, is designed to address this issue. And one of those has to do um, with global supply chains and having companies uh, with certain grocery seats actually have to report on their website what they're doing to combat human trafficking um, as it pertains to their uh, supply chain. But this is a continuing problem. And in fact, um, just last month, there was an indictment in Georgia uh, against 24 um, alleged traffickers there in a huge, uh, huge human trafficking case where they were actually submitting uh, over 70,000 false H-2A visa um, applications on behalf of, of workers. These workers were held in horrendous conditions. Um, two actually died. They were denied just basic, um, a basic standard of living. Uh, it was really, really terrible. And it's alleged that those traffickers profited over $200 million from this scheme that started a few years ago. And this is, this is known as Operation Blooming Onion. So we'll see where that goes. Um, but this is, this is something that's still happening. Did I hear you right? Did you say there were like 24? Was, it, was this 24 separate companies or 24 individuals with it? <laughs> 24 individuals. Um, if there's some companies in there, I don't recall that right offhand, but 24. And uh, this this ring was a transnational ring, and it was operating um, in Georgia, Florida, and Texas, I believe, and also in Central America. And in in those cases, then uh, the and how many people did you say that would be would have been the victims in this case? 
So in the indictment, it mentions that there are over 100 victims, but um, probably probably more than that. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to see that over 70,000 false H-2A visa applications were submitted um, uh, trying to get workers ad- admitted here. So, so you can see the extent of this. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, not, it's not a small issue. Well, and the kind of businesses that they are not limited agriculture, I guess. I mean, if, if they if they get up here and they have the control to be able to work in in conditions they're not not paid well, they mm-hmm. they don't live well. They're the one of the things that I think maybe is hard for people to kind of envision, though, is that these are people that were handcuffed or something, or or there's bars on the windows, but in fact their status is sort of a prison because they they really can't just walk away Uh, that's that's probably one of the difficult things for people to get their arms around because they could say well why don't they just leave if it's so so horrible but like you say if they get here and their their ability to be there and uh is is tied to their kind of staying in that system even if there's not bars on the trailer or wherever they're staying they can't just walk away isn't that isn't that the issue Right. Um, You know, there's extreme trauma involved in these cases, often uh, death threats to families and, um, you know, confiscating um, immigration documents. But also there are cases where people are physically held with fences around properties, um, being locked in trailers. So, so, so this has happened and it continues to happen. But you're absolutely right. This, um, this impression that, uh, that's often conveyed that human trafficking involves, you know, chains and, and, and uh, barred confinement, crossing borders. That can happen. It has happened, but that's not um, the only way that human trafficking occurs. And you can be trafficked right where you are. There are U.S. citizens who are who are trafficked and have never never crossed an international border. Um, so I think we have to be mindful of that too. So your law firm it identifies pro bono. So um, I mean, how do you keep? A law firm going that is donating time to uh, to to help people that are victims of this. Yes, well, um, I'm the only lawyer here who's focused on this particular issue, uh, and it's a grant funded position. And um, fortunately, there are other lawyers here who are working in different areas um, to help those who can't afford legal services get the legal services that they need. And there are a lot of lawyers all over the country who are doing this. And um, it's definitely one of the things that makes me uh, proud to be in this profession. When well, I'm, working I'm, proud, along. I'm proud of your being in this profession. <laughs> how does, how does you get this connection? So there's no doubt you mentioned all the kind of people that, that need the help and need to be represented and need to be assistance. How do you connect with them? How, they, they don't necessarily have Ann Ross's business card that's been handed to them. So how, how do you connect with the people that need to have you intervening in their behalf for the legal issues? Right. There, um, there's nonprofits who work in this area to provide, uh, whether it's housing or other services um, for human trafficking victims. And also uh, law enforcement is in contact with, with uh, these victims as well. So those are two common ways that, that they find, um, find their way to this office. 
Well, and and then once that starts, you meet with them uh, and the the person that's that's been impacted, uh, somebody that's a, a victim, and then do you actually you start you go to court on these issues? Well, it can lead to going to court. Human trafficking um, survivors have uh, an array of legal needs across um, various areas of the law, whether it be family law, criminal law, uh, bankruptcy. There are many different legal needs um, that often uh, have to be addressed. And so if it's something that I don't handle, um, we have a network of lawyers who, who can help. So there are volunteers out there who can um, help service these survivors. You know, just off the top of my head, it seems like um, the perfect storm here is that you start with a large number of people that are desperate. So we have people uh, often in, in other countries, but I think, as you pointed out, some here as well that are really desperate, that need to make an income. And for various reasons, not only that they perhaps lack a, a passport or an H2A or something, but for whatever reason, they're, they're just desperate to get some income. So that's one necessary uh, component. The other is that there's got to be some companies that are um uh, have no conscience uh, that are they're greedy and there's people that can make money in that system of trying to connect the desperate with those that uh, say that they need labor um, and sometimes going through contractors I would imagine that that the protection to the to a company might be that they ask no questions that it's a it's a labor contractor and saying okay I make a contract with you just get me um, 20 warm bodies and um, and then they don't ask any questions. Is that is that a realistic portrayal? Right. Um, some companies have uh, attempted and have successfully used uh, labor contractors sort of as an intermediary and tried to shield themselves from liability or responsibility um, for the conditions or abuses that the, the workers have faced. Um, there, is, there has been recent legislation back in 2020 that attempts to address this issue and impose joint liability on both the employer and perhaps the, the, the company um, or organization that hired the contractor um, if there's some sort of shared control over, over the workers' conditions, pay, things like that. So this, this has been recognized um, in federal legislation, and I and I hope that all those who are responsible uh, will fall under this, because no. you shouldn't be able to just pass this off to to I didn't know about it by looking the other way mm -hmm. when you're profiting from this. How much is agriculture the the issue, or or food processing? Because I, I know you have several examples in the websites that I've looked at where the conditions, a lot of people don't want to go work in some of the meat processing plants. Just it's tough. It's hard work and, you know, it's tough. And there's there's also still a lot of labor intensive um, farming practices where there has to be, you know, hand picking or hand hoeing or something like that, too. Uh, but of the of the whole situation, uh, there's there's other kinds of industries as well. But is there a consensus or a feeling of how much food processing or food production is is the human trafficking? 
So when it comes to labor trafficking, um, agriculture is generally cited as one of the top three sectors of where human trafficking is occurring, along with um, domestic servitude. So, you know, people having workers in their homes. Um, also, the hospitality industry uh, has had problems with this. So um, it, it does span across different industries, different sectors of the economy. But of course, um, we rely so much in agriculture on, on workers uh, laboring, as you mentioned, that it's really not a surprise that this is an area where you would find human trafficking. And, and again, when you try to identify where, the, where these issues are, and you mentioned there's, a, there's other uh, NGOs, non-government organizations that, that are looking at this as too, uh, in addition to addressing the cases that you currently have on your desk, um, do, you have, do you have a way that you're tapping in and seeing what's coming down the road or you see issues developing? And how do they come to your attention that? Um, you, you mentioned the, the Blooming Onion case, for example, but there must be some kind of new Blooming Onion cases that are on the verge that cases are coming together or there's uh, suspicions of, of improper practices. How do those come to your attention? How do they make it to your desk? Well, the way they make it to my desk really um, is, like you mentioned, through other NGOs that that have already identified victims. And also after law enforcement um, has been in contact, often they will find their way uh, to this office for addressing civil legal needs. Um, so that's that's generally how how that happens. But as we talked about earlier, this, this problem is particularly hard to detect. It's underreported, especially when it comes to labor trafficking. And so that's why I think that uh, having public awareness about this is so important because sometimes you, you do see things that maybe don't add up. And there have been times when uh, members of the public have reported an issue, and it's led to an investigation and, and perhaps saved lives. Unfortunately, this is a really old issue, too. I mean, you know, for probably many of us, uh, many people that are in agriculture today, they, they'll go back 100 years or 200 years or something like that, and, and other countries before they immigrated to the United States, and, and these, these kinds of unscrupulous behaviors are are not new uh, as much as we hope that they totally disappeared. And, it, it, and as you've also pointed out, even though there's a lot in agriculture has, has been an issue, but there's other, other industries as, as well. So uh, again, I think it comes as kind of a surprise to people that this is still an issue because it's not front page very often. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering, um, what do you say to people? Of how do they, what should companies and individuals be on the lookout for to, um, to be alert to seeing problems or reporting problems? Or, you know, what's the role of the public in, in issues like this? Yes, well, um, many, many victims and survivors are, are they're living among us and um, being observant and noticing things of is some does somebody seem to be under the control of someone else um, in a working environment? It's very difficult to see oftentimes on farms. And that's why 
the labor trafficking in agriculture is so underreported. Oftentimes, this is on private property. Um, so it's really hard to give specific examples. But if it seems that someone is being forced or controlled by another person, um, yeah, take a closer look at that. And there's a human trafficking hotline that 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 you can call if you have strong suspicions that this is occurring. And I'm happy to provide that number. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. 1-888-373-7888. And one more time. uh, 1-888-373-7888. And could we just, if they forget the number after they've written it down, because it's not handy, can they just uh, Google human trafficking hotline or something? Yes, yes. And um, there's an organization uh, named Polaris that does great work in the human trafficking area. They um, are involved in this hotline and also have a wealth of information on their website about human trafficking. So I encourage people to take a look at that. And I'm hasten to add that as, as, as I'm sympathetic and, uh, and, and really think this is important work that you're doing, but I also have to say that we still are talk, reminding people that this is, a, this is a small percentage of outliers that are doing these, you know, these really bad things. And, and I know in my own case, for all these years I've been involved with agriculture and I've been in 49 states, I've never seen it. And, you know, the people that the farmers I know and the organizations that I've been involved with are trying to, you know, doing a good job and trying to treat people fairly and, and so mm-hmm. forth. And and yet these things keep cropping up and they and they persist. Uh, I'm wondering if we start all the way to the end of this as a, a consumer, a consumer can't it can look right now. You They can do, order buy meat, for example, that says humanely produced, whether it's their eggs or, you know, whatever, so forth. And and they can see other sorts of things, such as the stories about um, being climate friendly and so forth on the back of, of, of goods. But I don't know if in any cases of people that are making um, an issue of promoting the fact they treat people fairly. Uh, it's it's it, Am I missing something? I mean, I'm because I'm I'm wondering if if somebody's listening to this that their connection to farm to table is the table, and not the farm, and they say, "Gee, that's horrible. I, I, we don't want this to take place." Is there anything you can do as a consumer that is supportive of the direction that you favor? Yes. Well, there are a couple of resources that I would recommend. Um, One is the Department of Labor publishes on their website yearly a list of countries and products um, where forced labor or child labor um, has been verified. So you can actually go to that website, dol.gov, look at some of the countries of origin and what's being made there that has been produced um, by forced or child uh, labor. I also say to the extent you can know your farmer, support local and regional food systems um, when you can. Uh, that's a help as there's more and more consolidation in agriculture. Um, that makes the price point or the, the wages lower for workers. Uh, there's a lot of pressure there and that can uh, create situations where more abuse can occur. Um, 
there's also there are also programs, for example, like the Fair Food Program, which uh, was something that um, workers in Immokalee, Florida, developed. And that's a great story. If if your listeners don't know about it, uh, there's also a really good book written on that written on that called "I'm Not a Tractor." I'm reading that now. Uh, but basically, what these workers did was come together and um, form an organization that uh, demanded better working conditions for themselves. And they developed a, um, a cooperation between retailers, growers, and workers um, to increase wages. And, and that's been a, a successful program. Well, you know, Anne, the, you bring up another issue, and, and that is country of origin labeling, because mm-hmm. there are people that and organizations whole industries that think that they're against it they're saying it's a it's an obstacle to free trade and and so forth but there are people can identify like where the food products come from and then could one be able to investigate what are the standards what are the labor standards there because i think oftentimes with country of origin labeling of knowing where the food products are coming from um, people are worried about the uh, health issues of uh, whether or not there's, you know, safety standards and maybe environmental standards. Mm-hmm. Is, is it a country that is using good environmental standards? But this is another whole dimension that also in when you look back into that, that a lot of people aren't paying attention to whether what labor fits into it. And and those it seems to me that should be a, a category that those are concerned about uh, understanding what country is coming from is understanding something about what the standards are in those countries. Exactly. And exactly. And if uh, if a country has been identified as having certain products um, manufactured or produced by children or uh, through forced labor, then we can elect not to buy those products if, if they originated there. And that's why information is so key in this area. You know, I wonder, um, China has had issues uh, now and people have can talk about the the Uyghurs that are mm-hmm. in far western. I have to remember which direction is which uh, uh, in in China. And there's there's been stories that come up from time to time, feeling that that prisoners and others are forced into agriculture production in that part of of China. Um, and I don't know that it's been proven in court. It just it's just kind of wisping around out there that it keeps popping up every once in a while that it may be an issue. Um, but when it gets to a, in like this particular example, are there are there people that are, are colleagues or others that you know that are lawyers that are paying attention to uh, issues like that that have been suggested for? for China with uh, with Uyghurs to see whether or not there's any connection with the food system and the food that's being exported from there. Yeah, well, I hope that uh, I hope that the federal government is paying attention. And um, there's a case not too long ago about uh, the Uyghur population being forced to produce tomatoes. And actually, Canada has introduced some legislation um, that's intended to address imports from uh, countries where uh, forced labor has been um, has been verified, and that that case was one of the things that prompted that legislation to be introduced. So there are uh, governments paying attention. It really is an international issue, and it, it's 
it's one where we need the federal government to step in um, because obviously most of us don't have the resources to to know what's happening oceans away. Well, and actually some products like you were talking about can be coming from China, for example, and go to Italy and be processed and be uh, naturalized citizens, if you will. The food itself is uh, Italian and it comes mm -hmm. here as uh, Italian pasta sauce or something like that. When, in fact, it's the origin might have been that part of China and might have involved labor. Uh, um, it's a lot, Anne. It, mm -hmm. It's a lot to not buy, be naive about this. And and I think the other thing that uh, that occurs to me when we talk about this, Anne, is that in corporate structures, one of the things that can happen that's going to be a problem is they can create silos, if you will, kind of mixing my farm metaphors here. But so that uh, somebody can can isolate themselves from knowing what else is happening in the chain, that they can say, uh, well, that's not my department, uh, or they can put pressure on somebody to procure, uh, whether it's lining up labor or lining up product to say, kind of a, well, don't ask too many questions. Listen, I don't care how you do it. You got to make this price point or you got to deliver for me and don't tell me, don't tell me how it happened. I just want it to happen. Uh, and, and, and I wonder if you see examples of that. Yeah, well, there are a lot of, of examples of that. And uh, in fact, these international supply chains are long and complicated now. And you might remember we saw that when we talked about the grain yeah, fraud. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes you would see a situation where uh, the country of origin was labeled as actually something um, that the, the grain passed through or the product passed through but did not actually originate. So uh, so th this is a problem with um, supply chain transparency. And another issue we saw, and this has been an issue in human trafficking as well, is that if a certain company is identified um, as culpable, they will then reorganize, change their name and come back uh, as a different entity. So these, these things can be difficult to investigate and um, a lot of these networks are very sophisticated. Well, and every once in a while, though, they get caught and identified and we draw attention to them. And I think that one of those cases that I, I think of when you look at like GMOs, for example, or or organic labeling, sometimes they may check that box uh, correctly on some imported product, but it doesn't necessarily identify other issues there. Labor is the one we're talking about today, but I think in some of these areas that they have, are very, very polluted and they could have the fruits and vegetables are irrigated from very um, polluted waters. So there's heavy metals and that present themselves and it's usually not even monitored. It's got cadmium, arsenic, lead, mercury, and so forth. So, and it's hard not to... Um, maybe discourage people. I, you know, I want to try to figure out how we get this back on an upbeat note. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the positive thing is that somebody like you and others are, are, are working for improvement. And I'd like to believe we're making improvement. Um, what, what else would you have to say to, um, to people that are concerned, whether they're farmers or consumers and so forth, that are concerned with the issues we're talking about right now? either what they can do to help, what they can do to be aware, uh, how they can be supportive of trying to correct 
the, these problems mm-hmm. to the extent they still exist. Yes. Well, um, as as we touched on before, uh, consumer dollars are power. And I think that matters. It is often very difficult to know where your food originated, but to the extent you can, whether it's buying from your local uh, farmer, uh, you know, local regional food systems, I think are key um, when you look at the resiliency of the food system as a whole and uh, workers have to be a part of that. So I think education about this issue, talk to people about this issue, even though it's not the most pleasant topic, um, there needs to be awareness around this because we're talking about people's livelihoods, but we're, we're talking about their liberty. And um, more than anything else, I think that's what we need to remember here. There are many issues we need to address in our food system and a lot of great people out there doing it whether it's you know, pesticide exposure, animal welfare, transparency in certain supply chains, um, there are a number of things, but we can't forget the workers. Uh, and it, just like the work I did before, we, we can't forget the farmers. No, you said it very well. I wanted to add one other thing too, and that is to not just assume that, um, that it's all local and, and small. I mean, I think, like you say, you need to know your farmer as much as possible, but also know the companies. I mean, I think there are, are food companies and packaged goods companies that are, are really showing that they're walking the talk too. Farmers of all sizes and shapes that are, are proud of, of showing how they treat how they treat farmers, just as proud as they are of showing mm-hmm. how they're treating the earth. I mean, we keep learning better times to take better care of Mother Earth, um, but the people that are delivering the food makes a difference too. And certainly consumers are saying that, look, we want to have it done right. We want to have people treated fairly. We want to have the environment treated fairly. Um, so, you know, there is an incentive, I think, uh, for the companies to not only do the right thing, but tell the story and have it, you know, totally transparent. And um, those things are encouraging. And I also find mm-hmm. encouraging, and you're doing what you're doing. I, I think that uh, we're, we're grateful that for you and for others like you that are in there and saying what we have left of these problem areas we're addressing. And I want to give you one more opportunity to suggest that people that want to understand this more, where they can find information, there are certain websites. Uh, uh, they just say, okay, I get it. I like it. I know what Ann's doing. Uh, I see there still is an issue. I'm concerned about it. And you've already given some instructions about know as much as you can about how your food is produced. Anything else? Are there any, any websites or other sources of information that you would suggest? Yes. Well, um, the Department of State, the Department of Labor, there are various uh, federal agencies out there that do have good information on human trafficking. But I would also encourage people to find out what's being done uh, in their local communities or in their states, because there, there are a lot of people working on this issue and there are ways to get involved. Um, so maybe begin educating uh, online, lots of resources. and then uh, do some state and local level research. And that, that can be a way to get involved. So on the local level, can they go to what the county extension offices or is there county supervisors? I'm just curious, do you know any kind of agencies that might be in? A, the, 
the first thing I would do is see if there's a local task force. Um, there are many task forces around the country. Uh, in fact, that's mandated by law. Uh, so that would be a place to start. If you can identify those individuals, then um, they can help you get involved. Well, Ann Ross, I want to thank you. Uh, it's great to visit with you. And, it's, and like I said earlier, I so appreciate the fact that you're, you're, you're fighting this battle. And I think we're making progress on it. And thanks for telling a story that's not the first story people think of when they talk about food or farm to table, but it's a part of the whole chain we need to be paying attention to. So I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Roger Wasson.